Welcome to the world of unsexy. From scrap metal to timber, estate planning to freight pooling, this show is a meandering exploration of just how sexy unsexy industries can be. I'm your host, Elaine Zelby, investor at SignalFire and eternally curious human being. In this podcast, we'll peel back the layers of niche and esoteric markets, understanding the history and looking at the future through the eyes of the pioneering entrepreneurs willing to bring technology and exponential improvements to these often overlooked spaces. Join me on a fascinating journey into the unsexy. Hi, everyone. My guest today is Dan Jose Bacchelli, co-founder and CEO of Silvertree, a wearable wellness device for active adults. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Elaine. Thanks for having me. Well, the first question I have to ask you is I saw you were at Urban Escapes, which was like one of the coolest companies ever. I never actually got to go on an adventure, but I'd love to hear the story about how you got involved with that. Yeah, sure. It's a, it is a fun one. So um, when I was graduating college, um, my older sister had just finished up two years on Wall Street and a year sabbatical around the world. And when she came back to New York, she sort of put the bug in my ear of working a job in New York City sucks. Everyone works really long hours and they don't have enough fun. We should start a company to help people have fun. And I was intrigued. You know, I was 22. The Great Recession was just rebounding. And I said, tell me more about what you had in mind. And she and I uh, both went to Dartmouth for undergrad. And Dartmouth had this cool thing where before you start your freshman year, you go on a four or five day orientation trip in the wilderness in New Hampshire. And the whole idea was you take 10 people who don't know each other, different walks of life, you put them in kind of a shared experience and they're friends for life. And sure enough, it worked really well at Dartmouth. So her idea was to take that same concept and bring it to New York City and say, we can plan escapes for people out of Manhattan to go hiking, rafting, kayaking, skydiving, rock climbing, pair everything with a visit to a local brewery or a winery and we'll sort of be like a little club med on wheels. And that was her pitch to me. And I said, that sounds like fun. We should do that. And so we started the company. Uh, she started while I was still in school. I joined right after. And we were doing it for about two years before we got acquired. We expanded to a few other cities. So it started as just kind of a fun idea and actually turned into a real business, which was uh, surprising to us at the time. I just love everything about it. I grew up in a family who's not super outdoorsy, and I always wanted to go camping. And so when I was in high school, I convinced my parents to let me go on a Knowles trip, if you're familiar with National Outdoor Leadership School. And my first camping experience was 30 days, and I loved it. And then I went on multiple trips. And um, when I moved to San Francisco after college, I ended up joining a group called Run and Chug. And it's a running group where we go and meet at a different bar every thir- or Wednesday night. We run about four or five miles and then we just drink and hang out. And it was my people. It was so much fun. In the summer, we do wakeboarding trips and backpacking trips. And some of us do triathlons. It's just um, very much my people. And so when I had originally heard about uh, Urban Escapes, I was like, this is my people too. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I- I'd like to join the Run and Chug Club. Is it still active? It is. There also is a New York chapter. Good. All right. Now I know what I'm doing next time I come out to SF. It's fun. It's the best. So then what what did you end up doing after it got acquired by uh, Living Social? So we actually stayed there for about three years. Um, You know, at the time of the acquisition, there were eight of us. It was my sister and I and six others. 
We had operations in four cities, Boston, Philly, New York, and DC. And Living Social's pitch to us was, we like what you're doing. We want you to do it with us under our name. And oh, by the way, we're about to announce a $175 million round. So we've got money for you to go do however, do it however you'd like. And that was enough for us. So when we when the acquisition went through within six months, we'd expanded to 30 cities from four. And we grew the team from eight to about 75 full time. And, you know, everything changed overnight there. Uh, wow. Bigger events, more people. I think in those three years, we probably did close to half a million uh, tickets, we called them, right? People coming on an event, uh, which was pretty wild. What was the craziest event you guys did? Wow, the craziest. I'll give you the one that sounds the craziest, but when I explain it, it's not going to sound so crazy. It was called shooting and drinking. And the idea was we would take you to a, you know, a, a rifle range to do trap and skeet shooting, sort of instructional. And then we would take you to a local distillery uh, you know, and we got a, got a bunch of press for that one, some good, some not so good. And we had to be really intentional about the way we talked about the event and, uh, and the order in which the event took place. But it was a very popular one, as you can imagine, people enjoyed that sort of thing. That is the correct order of operations. I always, when I tell people about run and chug, everyone always asks which one happens first. I'm like, just take a guess. I don't think if you had two beers, your motivation to go running is going to be particularly high. I, I tend to agree. I tend to agree. So that was a that was a particularly fun one. And then we did some other stuff that was um, more sort of international based. That was like truly outdoor adventure stuff, which you know everything from rock climbing to zip lining to scuba diving, uh, all sort of packed into one week. In Mexico, we did one to Iceland. So there was definitely some stuff that was a little bit more intense, uh, but not nearly as much press as something like shooting and drinking received. I bet. That sounds like my dream company. I should have come work for you guys. We had a good time. Well, how did you go from doing adventures for young people that involve drinking and being outdoors to uh, getting into what I'm now hearing people refer to as silver tech? So maybe we can go through that story. Yeah. Look, the, the joke here is like, good luck trying to find the common thread between Urban Escapes Living Social and everything I've done since then to what I'm doing today. I think the way I like to think about it and the way I've always pegged myself is I just always enjoy being at sort of the earliest stages of consumer stuff. And I'll use the word stuff in quotations because it spans from experiences to physical products to beverages. I mean, I've sort of touched it all. And the thing that always got me excited, the thing I always gravitate to towards is how do you design for a phenomenal user experience, regardless of what the product or, or thing is, you know, at the end of the day, we're all consumers. And so to be able to put yourself in the shoes of, of the end user and kind of think about how would I want this to work, you can apply that same framework to almost any industry. And if you do it well, you know, you see the tangible results, which is the reason we all do this stuff anyway, right? It's, it's not for the riches or the, or the, or the fortune because those you rarely, rarely show up. Um, it really is for the impact that you can have uh, on others. And just the people aspect. It seems like that's also a thread. It's um, everything you've done deeply involves people and uh, you know the interactions you have with them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, maybe we can talk a little bit about the state of silver tech in general today and kind of the, um, you know, there's the entire thing around aging baby boomers, you know, we're now getting into the, the 
point where we have this group of people and a complete lack of staff to help serve their needs. And um, lots of tech companies now are popping up to try to take on different aspects of it. So maybe walk us through the industry as a whole. Yeah, look, it's an interesting industry, right? I mean, the concept of aging populations has been around since the beginning of time, right? It's There's nothing inherently new about it. I think what's changed is there's a few sort of interesting inflection points in society. One of them you mentioned, which is an aging population and boomers being the largest population group in our society are now aging into this category where, guess what? Infrastructure is not really built to support that level of what will eventually become dependent care. And so you're seeing things like staff shortages. You're seeing things like social safety nets not being equipped to support people in this stage in life. Uh, you know, I think there's there's that happening from a societal standpoint. And then sort of from the opportunistic standpoint or from the big tech standpoint, you're starting to see the bigger tech companies leaning into this sort of category, not head on, but in the adjacencies, right? You sort of think about what Amazon and Google have done with their connected home hubs. And a lot of the, the inertia behind those projects internally were really about supporting aging in place. And you're starting to see a lot of applications built on those hubs. And so that's sort of given the rest of us you know, permission to go after a, a category, go after a market that, um, to your point and, and the title of the podcast, isn't as sexy as Web 3.0 or NFTs or crypto. Uh, but that doesn't make it any any less valuable or any less of a need to to sort of how we think about aging as a society. I would argue it's way more impactful and way more of a need than creating another NFT in general. Uh, I'm biased, but I would agree. One thing that I think is also particularly interesting when I think about the why now for a lot of these technological changes is that this is really the first generation who will age having used technology. You know, they might not be digital natives, but they are digital, you know, acceptors. They have smartphones. They understand how to use the internet. And it feels like that has never happened before where you couldn't apply technology to this population just because they didn't know how to use it. Are you seeing that same phenomenon? Absolutely. And and I think that's a really good point. And, and I'll sort of tack onto it. We are one of the few sort of industries or categories that's actually been helped by COVID. Right. Most other categories, COVID has become a headwind that they have to face. Whereas for us and for anyone in the sort of silver tech game, you're finally seeing forced mass adoption of technology by populations that four or five years ago maybe weren't using them. So some of the things that you're starting to see, you know, smartphone adoption was always there, but things like YouTube usage among 65 plus year olds has almost doubled in the last four or five years, largely because of COVID. And you're starting to see all these really interesting trends of people who maybe these these platforms or tools weren't designed for adopting adopting them out of necessity or out of there's nothing else out there. So why wouldn't I use this? And you're seeing big tech really try to catch up and figure out how to you know retrofit some of these more legacy platforms for a population group that's using them in a very different way. Facebook's probably the best example. Facebook is no longer the place where teenagers go to go to discover and learn. It's primarily used by the 50 plus crowd. And so Facebook has really started to think about how do we make this pro this product and the platform better for an older user and take out some of the things that were built to attract teenagers. So it's a really interesting time to be involved here. 
Oh, interesting. So Facebook has made a concerted effort to say, hey, let's lean into our user base as opposed to let's fight it. Look, I'm not going to, I don't work for Facebook and I'm not going to pretend like I know what they're doing or saying, and they've never publicly said this, but I think there are enough signals that companies like Facebook, companies like Apple too, uh, you know, Apple in particular with all of the the sort of connected health features that they've released in their wearables. And, and I'm sure we'll get into that, right? But fall detection is something that for most people, able-bodied people, that's not a feature that they're buying an Apple Watch for. And yet Apple makes a concerted effort to not just announce these features, but lean into them. And they're starting to build, you know, true marketing programs around features that are designed for a different user. And I think what you're going to start to see over the next couple of years is big tech companies are going to start adopting that playbook and saying, okay, we can continue to build the, you know, maintain the platform that we've built, but we can start developing discrete usage, discrete features for a population group that we've largely ignored. And I, again, I don't know that anyone would ever admit to this, but you'll sort of see it in the product roadmap and product development of, of where they're spending their time. That makes a lot of sense. Are there any other non-intuitive things that you've seen? Like YouTube would not have thought of that at all. That's very non-intuitive to me. Any other things like that that happened during the pandemic that you've seen shift in that population? You know, look, this is a population group, particularly if you start talking about folks on living on fixed income that have always been very against things like monthly subscriptions, right? You know, our Makes generation, we've, we've all kind of adopted the like, yeah, sure, charge my credit card monthly for Netflix and Hulu and Dollar Shave Club and, you know, the car wash down the street, right? That's part of our sort of everyday commercial activity. But if you talk to folks in their 70s, there's a, there's a big aversion to that. And one thing you've started to see is that over the course of the last few years, the tolerance for subscriptions for recurring monthlies has actually expanded quite a bit with this group. And we saw that firsthand when we did a lot of our pricing studies. You know, we expected there to be a lot of price sensitivity to a monthly subscription. But what we found was that as long as the value is there, people are more than willing to pony up for it today. Whereas five years ago, that probably wasn't the case. Interesting. That is a huge shift and also opens up a lot of doors in terms of what types of products you can sell. Exactly. Well, let's get into a little bit more now of what you're building at Silvertree. Sure. So, uh, you know, the way I always talk about this category, and, and most people will sort of remember those commercials from the early 80s of the old woman lying on her bathroom floor who screams, help, I've fallen and I can't get up. Yeah. Right? And, and I Life of, alert. And I get the same reaction, right? Everyone sort of chuckles like, oh, yeah, I remember those. Well, the problem is not only does that company still exist and that product still exists, those commercials are still on air. So we've got a category that was built by a brand 40 years ago that frankly hasn't evolved at all, right? And they still sort of treat aging like pathology. And I, I remember watching a, a TED Talk uh, by Jane Fonda maybe a decade ago where she kind of talked about aging, you know, the old, the old stereotype of aging as an arch, right? You sort of peak in midlife and then you just slowly decline into decrepitude. And her whole, you know, thing was, that's not the way we think about aging today. We think about aging today more like a staircase. It's a much more appropriate metaphor where there's constant growth, there's constant sort of betterment, it's sort of reaching up, right? And when you take that mindset and that sort of lens and you look at what products like Life Alert have done to the sort of category of aging, 
those two things don't coexist. Mm. And so when we sort of made all those connections, what we realized was not only can we build a better product, better functionality, more affordable, more, more accessible, we can also do it through the lens of we are a brand that empowers aging, that supports aging, that treats aging not like pathology, but treats aging like just the natural progression of, of sort of the human experience. And no one has really captured that well. So for us to be able to come in and do it from not just a product standpoint, but from a consumer experience standpoint and a brand ethos, we think there's an opportunity to not just own the category, but own this stage in life, which is, you know, kind of that really big idea that gets people excited is how do you, how do you change the social conversation around what it means to be aging? And how do we support people in this stage in life, which, you know, maybe a few decades ago was 10 years, 15 years. Today, with life expectancies growing growing longer and people wanting to stay home longer, you've got a 20 or 30 year window where people are aging, aging in place, and you have the opportunity to give them tools to do it on their terms, more gracefully, with dignity. And that's really where we want to play. Yeah, and make it not feel like something that was stuck in, you know, the 1980s. Exactly, right? I mean, no one... I always joke sort of aging, aging is hard enough. No one needs to wear the big red button around their neck to remind them of how hard it is. Yeah, and that's seriously. what these other companies have done, right? They've, they've built a product and a form factor that is so highly stigmatized that nobody is raising their hand and saying, yes, please, that's me. I need one, right? They sort of, it's forced adoption, which is the worst possible way to, to sort of build a consumer product. Well, the core of the product that you're building is a wearable, correct? Correct. So how has the process been designing and building a wearable and also something that is simple enough for that type of population to adopt? It's, uh, it's been interesting. You know, I, uh, I was told early on that hardware is hard, and I don't think I appreciated what that meant until I really got into it. Uh, we've been building now for about 19 months. So we started the company uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. And so doing distributed hardware development with a manufacturing partner in China has been nothing sort of challenging, um, but also really rewarding because we're able to sort of see the iterations in, in sort of these sort of step change moments. And what we've, you know, where we started, we started with these 3D prints that were really just intended to get an idea of size and form factor. And every couple of weeks, we were iterating not just on the print, but on the CAD, on the size, on the materials. And we went through progressive testing with all, with all the users that we sort of um, brought on to be sort of alpha testers for us. And from day one, when they were looking at a large plastic print to today, when they have, you know, a looks like, feels like working prototype, I mean, it's pretty amazing to see how they react to the product and how they try to use it when the first thing they ever saw was effectively a, 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 you know, 3D rendering and nothing more. Well, and as a podcast for those listening, it looks like a, you know, modern sleek design watch without the watch face, essentially. That's right. And, and everything we focused on during development was on how do we maintain a sense of accessibility? You know, if, if we're really le- leaning into this idea of a product ought to be not just functional, but provide some aesthetic value, some sort of everyday value? How do we build the right features into the product? How do we ensure that the form factor is such that someone chooses to put this on every day? 
It's not the thing that they hang on their front door that they reluctantly put on and hide under their sweater before they go out. It's the thing that when they wake up in the morning, it's the first thing they put on. Or better yet, they leave it on for, you know, weeks at a time. That's that's really that was the driving, you know, inspiration for us as we designed the product, tested different materials, figured out the right functionality was how do we ensure that this is something that people choose to wear? Does the device need to be charged? It does. So the device today is, uh, you know, we really focused on redundancy of communication. So the device today is effectively a, a cell phone with the exception of it doesn't have a speaker and it doesn't have a microphone, but it has LTE, it has Wi-Fi, it has Bluetooth, it has GPS. Hmm. You would imagine that a product like that, you'd have to charge every day. Well, for us, one of the big things that we were focused on was how do we extend the battery life such that someone doesn't need to charge it every day? You know, 80% of falls happen between the hours of 10 p.m. and 8 a.m., so in the middle of the night. Someone's walking to the bathroom, someone gets up to get a drink of water, that's when they're most vulnerable. So how do we create a product that meets these people where they are in life? So our product today lasts 30 days on a single charge. That's great. And then how do you inform somebody when it needs to be charged? So in addition to the, the wearable, there's also a mobile app experience. The idea being that anyone who has the mobile app, whether you as the wearer or your family member or neighbors uh, as, as part of your care team, they'll get notified when your battery's at 20%, at 10%, at 5%. If you don't have the mobile app and you just have the device, one of the features that we've built in is the ability to enable notifications to the device itself in ways that just involve haptics and lights. So we can send notifications that say, you know, that sort of signal, hey, time to charge the product, or hey, you've lost connectivity. That's smart. It was funny because in my head, I was thinking for a bit like, okay, but why don't you just use a smartwatch? But then when you said two things that really stuck out, one, the most falls happen at night and almost everybody's charging their watches at night. So you're not actually wearing it. Uh, and then two, you know, just even having to charge it every day is such a barrier to adoption. Um, so it makes sense to have something where you can actually sleep in it and you can wear it almost all the time. Yeah, exactly. That was a big part of it for us was how do we make it so that, you know, a user doesn't need to take it off ever. Right. And, and we thought about how do you do sort of on the go charging, which Whoop has done really nicely. And, and this became really important for us, particularly as we started looking into uh, people suffering from any form of cognitive impairment or cognitive decline. The ability for someone to maintain a sense of independence where maybe they're not as capable or competent as they were years ago, they could still have a product like this and, and have somebody else come and sort of support the charging of it, the, the setup. We wanted to ensure that that was accessible to everyone. And outside of fall detection, are there any other things that you alert on? So today, the product's primarily built as a safety product. So there's fall detection, there's the SOS button, and and you know one of the driving you know concepts for us has been how do you put the agency of care back in the hands of the end user, right? You sort of think about when there's a medical emergency, who's empowered to make those choices? Or when there's an event, who is responsible for ensuring that the right care is administered and received? As you age, a lot of times that gets sort of taken away from you, not necessarily maliciously, but it's just sort of the, the way it goes, right? Uh, if you think about different systems and how they're set up, uh, most 911 companies, most uh, EMS companies in the country are actually volunteer. They're non-paid. 
volunteer EMS has a mandate more often than not to transport to the hospital for two reasons. Number one, if they don't and you actually need it to be there, there's liability. And number two, that's how they make their money. They get paid via government, uh, you know, effectively contracts, right? Taxes, which are directly tied to how many transports they have a year. When you get to the hospital, guess what they're, guess what the triage nurse in the ER is trying to do? It's trying to admit you, right? And you start to see this sort of flywheel of, of misaligned incentives when the person for whom the product was intended is no longer in control of how their care is administered. And so all of the things we've built into the product today from a safety standpoint are to give the agency of care back to the end user. So if a fall is detected, it doesn't automatically go to 911. The wearer has an opportunity to, to either say, I fell, but I'm okay. Or if they choose that they need help, that first line of defense isn't 911. It's the family members. Mm. Because what we learned was most people are actually more willing to ask for help from family than they are from social services, 911, police, et cetera. That so makes sense. Today, all the safety features are sort of built in that direction. What we're and then if, at, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, it's okay. What I was going to add was we're leaning into now, what are all the different lifestyle features we can add in there? So things like medication management and reminders, the ability to maintain all of your health insurance information, your doctor's information in one place, the ability to share that with new doctors and new physicians so you're not filling out that intake form every time you go to a new doctor's office. Uh, things like activity tracking, step counting, right? How do we make this product go from pure safety into truly a lifestyle product, a lifestyle platform? That makes total sense. Uh, it's, you know, to, you brought up Whoop before, and it's kind of funny. I, I see analogies in a lot of ways where, you know, Whoop, the ultimate job to be done is sleep is what people use it for today. However, in terms of what it can do, it's very lifestyle based. It can do a lot more things that are ancillary, which is why people buy it because they want the entire package. But the job to be done is help me sleep. Exactly. Exactly. And and so for us to be able to find different places where the Silver Tree Reach can really add value to someone's life, that's where we feel like we have an opportunity to, to you know, not just change a category that hasn't been innovated in in 40 years, but really sort of become a, a, a drive for social change and what it means to age gracefully and independently. Well, by the way, when you were talking about misaligned incentives with EMS, it is shocking to me the more I learn about healthcare, how misaligned incentives are for everything. There are a bunch of companies now that are working with skilled nursing facilities because when people fall in these nursing facilities, again, they don't know, especially in dementia care or things like that, they don't know what happened when they're on the floor. So they immediately send them back to the hospital. Well, now it docks your readmission rates. There's a lot of fees associated with sending somebody to the hospital. And in reality, they might've just like tried to go to the bathroom and like slid themselves down, which happens a lot. So companies are trying to use computer vision to help figure out, was this a fall or is this person, you know, just on the floor because they can't remember how they got there? Um, yep. It's very, very cool stuff that's happening now. Yeah, no, it's, um, it is great to see kind of applications like computer vision and machine learning being applied to, again, areas of, of industry that probably haven't benefited from a lot of tech, technological innovations over the last decade. Uh, it's, it's, it's cool to sort of see that happening right now. Was there a compelling reason for you why you wanted to start this company? 
you know, for me, it kind of comes down to a couple of things. It's like the two questions I always ask myself. Number one is, will I feel good about doing this? You know, will I feel good about telling my kids about this? Will I feel good about talking about it at a dinner party? So I think there's an element of that. And then the other question I always ask is, does the world actually need this? And so for me, like those were two really easy questions to answer here. Um, you know, I, th- there's no sort of like strong personal resonance or touch story here. I mean, the reality is most of us, if we're lucky, get to experience aging, whether it's with family members or ourselves. And to sort of have the privilege of, you know, I, I, I knew all four of my grandparents. Today, only one of them is still alive and he's, uh, he's 91. Hmm. You know, for me to, to have that experience, the privilege of watching them age and not always gracefully, but it sort of created a, a sort of sense of, you know, I'm not going to say duty because that's probably too strong, but, but a sense of real gratitude for what I got to experience. And if Silvertree can support other people in maintaining a sense of independent living in this stage in life and do it in a way that doesn't ask them to sacrifice a little bit of who they are, then that's something that you sort of can get really excited about every morning when you wake up and, and you turn on the computer. I think that's fantastic. You know, the other thing too, that just is very um, you know pertinent right now, historically people lived and grew up where they were born. They didn't move. And now kids are living across the country, across the world from their aging parents and being able to have not only the peace of mind, but to be able to help remotely is very challenging. And so anything enabling, you know, families to help their aging, you know, aging people remotely, it's just, you know, that's going to be so mission critical over the next, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. Yeah. Look, I think it's a great point. Lane. It's, it's one of the parts of this industry that doesn't get as, as much attention, which, you know, there really are two customers here, right? There's the wearer, there's the older adult who is wearing the product and interacting with it on a day-to-day. And then in many cases, there is the adult child or adult children for whom this product is as valuable as for the older adult. Because for folks like us who have our own families, our own careers, we're sort of in what's been called the sandwich generation, where we are juggling not just our, our young children and our careers and our lives, but our parents are starting to get into this stage in life where they are not as independent as they were when we were younger. And so how do, how do we manage that? And what are the things we can do? And so going back to this question of why now, you know, our generation, we've been sort of trained to look at technology to help solve some of these stickiest problems. So from that standpoint, there's never been a better time to build a connected care platform between older adults and their adult children because the need is so so present and so real. And you finally have an opportunity to be as attractive to both constituencies here. Yeah, absolutely. My grandma, I actually still have both of my grandmothers alive, which is, I also was like you, I got to know four grandparents, but my, one of my grandmothers is at this point, 92, still lives by herself, still sharp as a tack, but you know, she's going to continue to want to be by her, you know, live alone by herself. And just even having something that you feel good about knowing that she's, you know, in Oklahoma, not anywhere near any of us is, you know, important for my dad, for us, for, for other people too. Yeah, it's huge. It's huge, right? The the peace of mind premium uh, is, you know, you you can't put a you can't put enough value on that, right? Yeah. For you know, I think back, I've got a close friend. Um, you know, when I was thinking about starting this, the original thesis was actually much more narrow. It wasn't 
thinking about older adults and aging gracefully, it was how do we build a product that keeps people suffering from cognitive decline sort of at home independent for as long as possible? I've got a close friend whose mother was diagnosed with uh, Alzheimer's uh, at the age of, I think, 52 or 53. Ugh. And his, his parents were separated. And my friend and his wife are public school teachers. And so watching them sort of struggle with, you know, how do I know mom's okay when they were at school and they couldn't leave was it just sort of highlighted the need for me. And, and this idea of peace of mind and comfort is something we're all you know, we, we at some, on some level, we take it for granted because of what technology has afforded us to do. So to be able to build a product that can really allow for that to happen in a, in a way that is not as invasive as home sensors or cameras, um, it was also sort of a pretty powerful reason to, to go build this company. Well, definitely doing net positive things for the world. <laughs> the, the last question I love to kind of wrap up with is has there been any piece of uh, guidance or wisdom that you've been given in your life or career that are words you now live by? Words I live by. Um, I've I've received a ton of really good advice throughout my throughout my life. There's one that stands out in particular, uh, which is to always be generous with your time, because what I found was, you know, taking the couple of minutes to reply to the cold email to say not interested or taking the meeting when maybe it was a meeting that you didn't really see value in it, sort of face value, will more often than not at some point yield yield dividends. And so being generous with that time with others has always kind of allowed me to, to build better relationships. And frankly, it's just made me smarter because the more time you spend with others, the more you absorb. And so if there's one thing I would say to, to a younger version of me is continue to be generous with your time. That is one of my absolute favorite pieces of advice. And you said it more eloquently. I always tell people, for me, one of my biggest pieces is everything that I've ever gotten in my career has been by giving away my time for free. And, you know, typically guiding young people, but I like be generous with your time is a better way to say it. Well, I'm glad that we both live by the same motto. Definitely. Well, Dan, thank you so much for coming on. It was a pleasure getting to hear a little bit more about you and your journey and what you're building at Silvertree. Excited to stay in touch and watch. Thanks, Elaine.